I couldn't wait for 2021 to be over and 2022 to be over. And my wife summed it up best, my, my feeling towards the new year. She sighed yesterday and she said, I don't know if I'm ready for a whole new year. <laughs> I thought that's a very strange statement, but I completely understand. Uh, but uh, I know this, uh, this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I'm also at that age where I typically don't stay up for the new year, but I do wake up for the new year, uh, and I roll over, this is my tradition, and I say something along the lines of, Happy New Year, and wife, my wife goes, uh-huh. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Very touching. Well, we're doing something a little different this morning. I'm not going to restart our series through 1 Peter quite yet. Uh, I wanted to take a week uh, and, uh, and just do a, a little different, uh, not knowing if people were in town or not. And so we're doing a biographical sermon this morning. Uh, and it can be hard to preach something new uh, for those that have been a, in a Bible teaching church for decades. But my hope is, is that when you looked at the screen and you saw the lesson of Ahithophel, that your response was, Ahithahu? <laughs> that was you. Good. All right. So it at least worked a little bit. Ahithahu. Uh, no, it's Ahithophel, a very, very interesting character in Scripture. Uh, and, um, and so we're going to, and thinking of the new year, uh, and, uh, and getting, getting our minds and our lives right, and our perspective right, we're going to look at the lesson of Ahithophel. So who was Ahithophel? Well, we're told in 1 Chronicles 27, verse 33, that Ahithophel was the king's counselor. Right? He's the king's counselor. Not only is he the, a king's counselor, for King David, he is the king's counselor. Uh, he is, what was that old commercial when, is it A.J. Hutton, something like that, when he speaks? E.F. Hutton. E. Hutton, thank you. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. That is Ahithophel. Uh, he's not just a counselor amongst a group of counselors. He is the counselor. He is the chief counselor for King David. And not, this is how he's described uh, in, uh, in 2 Samuel. It says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and Absalom. When you went to Ahithophel for advice, for counsel, when he spoke, it... it he spoke with the wisdom that is like God himself would speak. Like, so, you know, there's God's wisdom, and then maybe right behind him, Ahithophel's, and then everybody else's. That's who Ahithophel is. He, just, he was so wise and, 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 um, and just could, could see things clearly, knew what to do uh, in order to, to deal. Back in college, I, I tried to, to play pool and um, nine ball, and... And I'm the type of nine ball player that the very next ball is the one that I have to concentrate on. Right? But somebody who plays nine ball, when they break the table, 
and they see how the balls all scatter on the table, they know exactly for all nine balls what they need to do. They, they see it all. They see it completely. Uh, that's not me. I'm lucky if I can hit the cue ball correctly. That's, that's my skill level. Ahithophel was the type that he knew if you do this, then this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, then you get the conclusion that you want. And he just saw so much clearer and better than everybody else. He was an incredibly wise counselor. So he spoke with foresight and wisdom, and it was like receiving the wisdom of God when Ahithophel spoke. But there comes a point during David's reign where his son Absalom rebelled and attempted a coup to take David's throne for himself. The violence from within David's own dynasty was God-appointed judgment on David. Here's why God said David was having a pretty, as far as within, I mean, there were, there were enemies and, and land and conquering to be done, but within his own kingdom, things were going really smooth, really well. Uh, but then David did a wicked thing. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 records the wicked actions of King David. And I'm going to paraphrase the account, but I do encourage you to read it for yourself uh, at some point. So that's again 2 Samuel chapter 11. Make a little note if you want to, to, to read this over. I said I'll paraphrase what David did. One evening, David is walking on the palace porch overlooking the city. He shouldn't have been there. If you read it, it says, At the time when kings are out to war... David was not. He was back at his palace. But he's walking along the porch, the, the roof of his, of his palace, and he looked down, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing on the top of her roof. And David did not look away. Instead, he asked around to find out who she was. David was told that the beautiful woman was Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah. Uriah was a soldier and was away from home fighting in King David's war against the Ammonites. Upon hearing that the beautiful Bathsheba was home alone, David sent servants to go bring her to his palace. Then he had sex with her that evening and sent her home. Later, she sent word to King David, two words actually, I'm pregnant. Her husband Uriah was away in war. It would be obvious to everyone that the child was not Uriah's. David sent word to have Uriah come back to Jerusalem and to give a report on the battle. When Uriah was finished with the report, David said, Okay, why don't you go home and rest? David was planning on Uriah doing what soldiers do when they come home from battle. Any baby boomers here this morning? All right, soldiers come back from war and population increases. But Uriah did not go home to spend quality time with his wife. Instead... Uriah spent the night at the palace entrance with the palace guard where everybody could see that he had not gone home. So when secrets get out that Bathsheba is pregnant, witnesses will do the math and know that the child does not belong to Uriah. But David asked Uriah, why didn't he go home to see his wife and to experience the comforts of home before heading back to the front lines? Uriah gives an answer that shows how honorable Uriah is. He says, how could I enjoy the benefits and comfort of home when my fellow soldiers are staring down the enemy, risking their lives? I will go home when we all go home. So that foiled David's plan to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy. 
David responds to Uriah's honorable actions with even more wicked actions. He sends a note with Uriah to the head military commander that uh, contains a plan. David's plan is to have Uriah lined up against the enemy's best soldiers. The Israelite army will charge at the enemy with Uriah leading the way. The Israelite soldiers will suddenly retreat except for Uriah. He'll be left out of that plan. The Ammonite warriors will kill Uriah as he is left out in the open all by himself. And that is exactly what happens. Uriah and a few other Israeli soldiers die in this fake attack. David then officially marries Bathsheba, and when it becomes apparent that she is pregnant, people will think it all happened legitimately. That's David's plan. David might even come out of this event looking like an honorable, generous guy taking care of a fallen soldier's wife. The type of guy who takes care of his fallen soldier's wife is honorable, but David has not been. David might have been able to trick a lot of people, but here's the important thing he didn't remember. You can't trick God. Through the prophet Nathan, God confronts King David, and God pronounces judgment on David because of his treacherous deeds. And 2 Samuel, might have already been there, huh? Nope. In 2 Samuel, we'll get to Absalom's rebellion here in a second. It says, from this time on, 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, this is what Nathan the prophet says to David on behalf of, of God. It says, from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your very own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. David had many battles against enemies from outside his kingdom. Now he would have turmoil from within from his own family. That is what the Lord told him. So just as God promised, David has major troubles with his own family. Absalom, David's son, rebels and attempts to take over the kingdom. And that is where we are reintroduced to Ahithophel, the king's chief advisor. Uh, this map just shows how Absalom, through years of backhanded, in secret treachery, Uriah goes and he takes 200 uh, of the palace folks with him. They don't know what he's about to do. Uh, and, uh, and he gets everybody talking about how he's king now. And, uh, and they kind of just go along with it because maybe it would have been dangerous not to. Um, Maybe they, they thought something, there was a lot of confusion in this, which is, I think, what the point, the plan was, to have a lot of confusion. Uh, but it says in 2 Samuel fifteen twelve, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices uh, up there in the north of, uh, of uh, the Sea of, uh, of Galilee, so when he offered sacrifices, uh, he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors, who lived in Gilo, soon Many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. Absalom knew of the wisdom of Ahithophel, and if he's going to pull off this coup against his father, he thought, 
If I can get Ahithophel on my side and, and receive his counsel, this all becomes a lot more likely. In fact, hearing from Ahithophel is like hearing the wisdom of God himself. Uh, and so he calls for Ahithophel, and Ahithophel joins him. So what did Ahithophel do? One thing is, is that he joined in Absalom's rebellion. Uh, David's chief counselor is now against David. Word reaches King David that his son Absalom has started a rebellion. David recognizes the immediate danger that he is in, but also the danger of those who are loyal to him. He's back in Jerusalem in the palace. David is also worried about the possible destruction Jerusalem would experience if the city were to be surrounded by those now following Absalom. So David leaves Jerusalem with a small contingent and those uh, who are loyal, and he leaves in a big hurry. This was not one of those planned deals. It was get your things. If you don't have it in hand, if you're not wearing your coat, leave it there. It'll be better to get out. So the only ones left behind are 10 of David's concubines, and they are left there to take care of the palace. David is concerned, but he doesn't express a huge level of concern until he hears about Ahithophel. In, skip ahead here. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 31, it says, When someone told David that his advisor Ahithophel was now backing Absalom, David prayed, O Lord, let Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. He prayed it, but he wasn't too certain that it was going to happen. Remember, Ahithophel's advice is revered. People say his advice is like getting the wisdom of God. With Ahithophel now advising Absalom, David is in serious trouble. Once in the city, Absalom, Absalom returns, and once he gets back to Jerusalem, he asks Ahithophel for counsel in the next steps to solidify control over the kingdom. And Ahithophel gives this advice. Ahithophel told him, Go and sleep with your father's concubines, for he has left them here to look after the palace. Then all Israel will know that you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation, and they will throw their support to you. So they set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it. And Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. This is shrewd advice. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to take a wait-and-see approach. Because if you take an approach where you uh, side with one and it doesn't go that way, it can be bad for you, right? You can, you can lose your life that way. And so Ahithophel sees that there are a lot of people who are Okay, Absalom's the young guy, you know, he has a lot of charisma, he has some following, he has backing, but let's not underestimate King David. I mean, he is a warrior king. Let's, let's take a, a wait-and-see approach. Ahithophel's advice is, Absalom, nobody will be able to take a wait-and-see approach. Nobody's going to say, well, let's see if father and son can, can come together on this and, and find a, a solution, a peaceful solution to this. Ahithophel says, everybody will know. D David will no longer be able to say, you're my son, you know, I forgive you. It's going to be 
people are going to have to take sides. And King David cannot overlook this, uh, this, this action. It's, it's forcing King David's hand. And it's forcing the hand of a lot of people who are unsure uh, of what's going to happen next. That is the shrewd advice of Ahithophel. It is shrewd and it is cunning. And it was followed. And so Absalom does that. Uh, and, uh, and it's in public view. And remember... What did the prophet Nathan say to David? You did this thing in secret, but it's going to be public when it happens to you. And that's exactly what Absalom does. So then, Ahithophel, his advice is sought after again. Uh, I was going to tell you this at the beginning, but this is a little comedic break. Uh, I, I preached this sermon 20 years ago in my first church, and we had a deaf member uh, in the church, and so we, we had someone who was always doing sign language. And when I started up and I said the lesson of Ahithophel, the person doing the signing turned around and said, what? <laughs> and I said, I said, Ahithophel. And he looks at the deaf gentleman in the church, and he goes, A-H, right? And then does this. <laughs> For those of you that don't know sign language, this isn't anything, all right? But I always cracked up at A-H that, just taking the rest. Uh, but it's been fun to say Ahithophel a lot. I encourage you when you get home uh, to, to say it as often as you can. Uh, Ahithophel has asked his advice, all right, now what? Now we, we got, there's no, there's no turning back. David has to take action. This, this can't resolve in a, you know, there's going to be a winner and a loser. Ahithophel, how can I be the winner? And here is what Ahithophel urges David to do. Now Ahithophel urged, not David, this is what Ahithophel urged Absalom to do. Let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David tonight. I will catch up with him while he is weary and discouraged. He and his troops will panic and everyone will run away. Then I will kill only the king. Wow. Wow. It's kind of personal, isn't it? I will bring all the people back to you as a bride returns to her husband. After all, it is only one man's life that you seek. Then you'll be at peace with all the people. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Can I point out that Ahithophel is not a soldier and is not an assassin? He is what? He is a counselor. And his plan is, we'll take just 12,000. We don't need more than 12,000. 12,000. David is weary, confused, tired, quick-acting force. And we will go there, and when they see us, there'll be such panic and such worry. People are going to run away. The only one we need to kill is David, and I'll be the one who does that. That's, that sounds like an assassin. That sounds like a, uh, someone who, who, who has been in many battles, many wars. That doesn't sound like, like the words of someone who, who was a counselor, who was an advisor, uh, a palace advisor. Uh, this, is, this is personal for Ahithophel to, to say, I need the 12,000 to scare everyone else away, but we only need to kill David and I'll do it. I'll be the guy. 
But Absalom's advice is thwarted because David has a buddy of his who is also an advisor. And, uh, and during all of this, he presents himself to David and he says, I'm with you, pal. And David says, no, I need you for something else. I need you to stick in the palace. And when Absalom comes back, you need to present yourself as, a, as an advisor to Absalom. All right? I need you there. Here's what I need you to do. And again, this is all 2 Samuel, verses chapter 15 through 17. Please read it. Uh, for time's sake, I'm, I'm summarizing and moving through. He says, here's what you need to do. This is what I, I want you to... Whatever Ahithophel says, give the opposite advice. Because we need Ahithophel's advice to not be listened to. Because when he speaks, he, it'll work, whatever he says. We don't know what Ahithophel's going to say, so you need to be there. And whatever Ahithophel says... You say the opposite and convince them to do the opposite, to follow your plan. And so uh, Hosea does that, David's, David's friend, he, he does that. So when Ahithophel says, small force, lightning quick, let's go, the traitor to Absalom says, no, David is a fierce warrior. All your soldiers know what a warrior David is. And not only is David a warrior, he has... Mighty men, renowned men, legends, legends about these guys. And they're recorded in scripture, some of the uh, actions that David's uh, small, about 300 fighting force, uh, legendary actions that they've taken. He said, everybody knows that. You, you go and do this quick. You go and do this quick. And they're, they're going to not trust that they can overtake David and his, and his soldiers. You don't need a small force. You need every soldier you can get your hand on. And it's going to take time to bring them all in. He didn't know what he was going to say. He didn't have a plan. His plan was, if Ahithophel says small and fast, then we need to be big and slow. And he gives that advice. Ahithophel left the palace thinking his advice would be taken. But instead, they said, you know, in this matter, as wise as Ahithophel is, in this matter... He got this one wrong. This is much better advice to, to make sure we have as many soldiers as possible. Ahithophel's wrong in this. So, in 2 Samuel 17, 23, when Ahithophel realizes that his advice has not been followed, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there, and was buried in the family tomb. When I read that, I think, what happened? What happened? Hithophel was positionally the highest governmental advisor in the nation. Not only did he have the opportunity to, to give advice to the king, but the king was always inclined to listen to him. I mean, he had tremendous amount of respect, not just from everybody in the kingdom, but his, the one boss completely bought into whatever Ahithophel said because he was so wide and shrewd. How do you go from being 
that high up, that much respect, that much privilege, that much opportunity, how do you go from there to riding home on a donkey, putting your, your, your business in order, and killing yourself? What happened to Ahithophel? Well, we might never find out. No, just kidding. I'm going to tell you. That was, my, that was my attempt at a little joke. Hope you enjoyed that. We aren't told explicitly what happened to Ahithophel, right? We're not told explicitly. Uh, but we are given a couple of clues, all right? We are given a couple of clues. Here is the first clue. It says Eliphalet, or Eliphalet, just say watermelon and move on when you come to names like that. <laughs> and then there's another watermelon name, Ahasbi and Lachai. And then it says Eliam, son of Ahithophel. All right? Eliam, son of Ahithophel. That is the first clue. The first clue. Here is the second clue. When David sent out to find out who Bathsheba was, he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of who? Eliam. So who is Ahithophel to Bathsheba? That's grandpa. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Is it starting to make a little sense now? Now it becomes clear. No wonder... Ahithophel wanted to kill King David. Sometimes we forget that the accounts in Scripture are not bedtime stories, but are actual, factual accounts of real people's lives. David used his position as king to get what he wanted with complete disregard for how his actions would destroy other people's lives. People talk. Actions seldom stay hidden. David wasn't as discreet as he thought he was in dealing with Bathsheba. We know that he asked around, trying to find the identity of Bathsheba, so now those people are clued into what's going on. David sent servants to go fetch Bathsheba from her home. They know what's going on. I don't know where you live, but uh, where I lived before Ida, we had shut-ins that never left the house, but they saw everything that happened on the street. Neighbors see, neighbors look out windows. Palace guards witnessed Bathsheba enter David's chamber. Bathsheba became the center of palace gossip. She got knowing looks from those within her circle. People knew or suspected that they knew, and Ahithophel, as her grandfather, would certainly hear about it. Maybe Ahithophel had great appreciation for Uriah. We saw Uriah's honor uh, demonstrated when he slept outside away from home because his thoughts were of his fellow soldiers who were sleeping outside, wondering if tomorrow would be the day of their death, wondering if the enemy was closing in on their position in the darkness of night. That's an honorable man who, who thinks about his fellow soldiers that way. Any grandfather would be proud to have a granddaughter marry an honorable man like that. When David inquired about the identity of Bathsheba, he was told who she was, right? David knew Bathsheba 
was Ahithophel's granddaughter. Imagine how disrespected Ahithophel felt after serving the king so well and then being disgraced by that king. Ahithophel certainly had reason to be resentful and angry toward David. But his unresolved anger turned to bitterness, and bitterness killed him. Bitterness killed him. We don't often think in terms of that. If you, if you look at uh, online at, at the percentages of how people die, they don't list the real reasons why people die. Uh, people die out of, from foolishness a lot of times. People die from bitterness. People die from pride. Here, Ahithophel died from bitterness. He hated King David for what he had done to his family, to what he had done to Bathsheba. Palace community is a small community. Right? They all lived in the same grounds. They knew each other better than they probably wanted to. And imagine Hithophel seeing David every day, this godly king, having murdered his grandson-in-law, having ruined the reputation of his granddaughter. Can you imagine how that seething rage just builds and builds and builds? Until one day you get your chance to take revenge personally. The army will scatter and I personally will kill King David. And you believe that day has finally come. The day you have been waiting for for years as bitterness has continued to grow and grow. And then all of a sudden it's taken away by another foolish king. And the only thing he could think to do, go home, set my affairs in order, and hang myself. That's all I've got to live for. Bitterness destroys. Bitterness is that state of, of mindfully holding on to angry feelings. Bitterness is ready to take offense, able to break out in anger at any moment. Bitterness poisons the mind. So what do we do with this? How do we root out bitterness? If it's existing in us, how do we root out? In Hebrews 12.15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness does more than just destroy yourself. Bitterness is more contagious than COVID, and more dangerous probably as well. Not to, not to underestimate the, the danger of COVID, but, but bitter, bitterness, many become defiled through bitterness. Recognize that bitterness from one affects the many. So we need to stay diligent in spotting bitterness in ourselves. Bitterness can live under the surface for quite a while, but it can sprout up and cause all sorts of trouble. How do we root out bitterness. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says this, be angry and do not sin. Recognize that anger isn't a sin, but anger leads to sin. 
Anger unchecked will bring that about. So, so be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We need to be careful when we're angry. We need to be careful. When you feel yourself getting angry, put a mental check in. Be careful. I'm in a dangerous situation right now. When I'm angry, I don't think clearly. I think irrationally. I'm impulsive. Here, I'm, I'm getting angry. Being angry is not sin. But at that point, it's time to start being careful. Approach this with a lot of thought, with a lot of prayer. Be careful. Recognize this, that the devil finds angry people to be very useful for him. When you start getting angry, that's when the devil says, all right, they're they're almost ready. I can do some things with this. Get ready, here it comes. You are useful to the devil when you are angry. You need to be careful. Not a sin to be angry, but recognize I need to be careful in this. And then, it goes on to say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. We need to get rid of it. The whole part about being angry, it says do not let the sun go down on your anger. You need to, to deal with it soon. Don't go to bed angry because you won't wake up different than the way you went to bed. Uh, sometimes I'll have an annoying dream and when I wake up, I'm annoyed. And then I think, why am I annoyed? Because I had a dream? Imagine going to bed angry. I don't think we have to imagine this. When you wake up, did it magically go away? Was it better? You're like, oh, I'm glad I won't. A good night's sleep got me over that. No. It's now under the surface. Right? It's now, you might be able to function without the appearance of anger, but now that anger is turning to bitterness. Turning to bitterness. So we need to get rid of it. This is let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away. Get that away from you. Get that away from you. We got to get rid of it, but then we need to replace it. So instead of bitterness and wrath and anger, we're told, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind. Replace that anger and bitterness with kindness. With kindness. To have your heart be ready, to be tender-hearted, means that your heart is, is ready to concern yourself with another. Uh, there's a, 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 probably in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a Christian song that says, don't let your heart grow hardened. Don't let your heart grow cold. May it always be tender-hearted, is the idea. To care, to, to be ready to concern yourself with another. Uh, because I, if my heart is hard, it takes me a minute to soften it up. You know, I'm not the Grinch. One little Christmas gift doesn't make my heart grow three sizes. Right? It, it takes me, well, I need to keep it tender 
all the time so that it's ready all the time to concern itself with others. And then here's the key. Forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. I had a, a pastor, a mentor, after I got married, he asked me this question. He said, what's the difference between a good marriage and a bad marriage? And I said, I don't know. We were, had just been married, you know? I mean, I had at least six good months before anything I did really messed things up. Now I, and he said, it's not the amount of time you fight. He said, it's pretty much the same. He says, it's how many times you forgive. He said, in a good marriage, you have a disagreement and a resolution. And then you have the next disagreement and the next forgiveness. And then it just kind of goes that way. He said, a bad marriage is just one long fight. And in fact, the husband and wife, they can't even remember what it was that started the fight. It's been so long ago. And in my 20-some years in talking with people, I have found that to be the case. Talk to people who are, who are frustrated in their marriage and, and said, well, what was the fight about? And they look at you like, how am I supposed to remember that? It was 15 years ago. Okay. The ability to forgive. The ability to forgive. It has to happen. Now, forgiveness, in a lot of ways, is like a legal action, almost. But we have to be... We should, some point we'll go through what Scripture actually says about forgiveness... Um, a lot of times what we say is forgiveness is we say, oh, that's okay, that's not forgiveness, all right? God forgave us, but there was something that occurred for that forgiveness to occur. What was it? Christ died. That's pretty important in forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God couldn't say, eh, that's all right, we all make mistakes. Uh, but we all need to be ready and willing to forgive. How ready and willing was God the Father willing to forgive us? He sent his own son to die for us. That's how much the Father desires to be forgiving to us. We need to be kind, tender-hearted, ready to forgive, desiring to forgive, to say, I'm not going to hold this against this person. Right? Now, there are some things that are so heinous. I, I had someone tell me before, if somebody gets arrested in the church, if the church treasurer gets arrested for embezzlement, you can forgive them, but you don't make them church treasurer again. Right? That, that's just wisdom, right? Uh, but you can forgive. That doesn't mean everything that, that happened, that there's no more consequences for it. We have to deal in reality. Uh, but ready and desiring and wanting to forgive. Because if we don't, the bitterness that's under the skin, that's under the surface, that's been festering, continues to grow and grow and grow and eventually it gets to the point where you have to kill yourself because you don't see any other way forward. That's where Ahithophel got to. That's how serious it was for Ahithophel. And maybe you're thinking, oh, this, this little bitterness that I have, I'm not going to go hang myself over it. I believe you. You probably won't. That would be kind of a drastic step. But I also know it's not going to do you any good. That it will harm you in some way, it will harm you, and it could be in ways that you don't even anticipate that we can't even see coming. We have to root out any bitterness that we have against another. We have to get rid of it, and we have to replace it. We have to be willing to forgive like God was willing to forgive. 
I've met someone before who, who they, they, were, they were wronged, not in a major way, we'll say in a medium way. And they said, I will not forgive. I will not forgive. That's not who I am. And I said, well, that is who God is. And I said this, I was very kind in my tone, but I was also straightforward. I said, if you have experienced the eternal forgiveness of God, I don't see how you can say to another, I will not forgive no matter what. That is the words and the attitude of someone who has not experienced the forgiveness of God. But if you have, and I pray that you have, I pray that you've trusted Christ as your Savior, recognizing he is the only way of salvation, that he paid it all on the cross. I hope that is your testimony. Then we have to be willing to forgive others. Because as wronged as we are, it doesn't come close to how wrong I have been towards God. I have offended the eternal Holy One with my sin. And nothing that anybody can do to me can come close to what God has forgiven me of. This new year, 2023, let's start out by saying, I'm getting rid of bitterness. I am rooting it out. I'm going to deal with this issue. I'm going to talk to this person. We're going to see if we can come up with a resolution. But my heart is going to be tender. And my heart's going to be, I want this to be gone. I want, this, I want forgiveness to be extended. I want us to be made right. Because God did all of the work to make me right with him. What a great, who cares about losing weight in 2023? <laughs> who cares? Who cares? This is a much bigger deal to root out that bitterness and to be forgiving as God has been forgiving of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you freely gave through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that he is our example and our motivation to be forgiving of others, to not let bitterness uh, find a foothold in our life and, 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 and destroy us, which is exactly what Satan wants, but instead uh, that we'll be kind to one another We'll be tender-hearted and we'll be ready to forgive as an example of you. And Father, that when we do forgive, help us to know you better because of it. And Father, and, and may, may others see it and glorify you uh, when they don't understand how forgiveness could be extended in such a circumstance, that it, it, our testimony will be shown in, in, in how you've forgiven us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.